Between back to school and sports, my kids are all about their snacks this time of year, but finding healthy snacks with real food ingredients that also won't break the bank isn't always easy. That's why I love Thrive Market, an online membership-based market that makes healthy living easy and affordable. Everything is organic and non-GMO, and members save an average of $32 on every order. We're all about the Larabar, cinnamon sunflower seeds, and the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds. But Thrive Market is so much more than snacks. They have organic and essential groceries, safe supplements, non-toxic home products, and clean beauty products, plus ethical meat, sustainable seafood, clean wine, and more. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues where you can sign up and see my favorite items. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a family in need. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. I'm always trying to get more fruits and vegetables and real foods in my kids' diets, but I don't have a lot of time. So quick and simple options are a must. That's why I love the Vitamix. Unlike other blenders, the Vitamix blends everything up into a super smooth consistency, much like a juicer would, except you get all the nutritious fiber that regular juicers leave behind. And what I love most is that it isn't just for smoothies. Every Vitamix has an entire range of textures to choose from, so you can use it to make dips and spreads, nut and seed butters, hummus and guacamole, muffins, pizza dough, plant-based milk, and frozen treats. Vitamix has been around for 70 years and all of their blenders are powerful, durable, and built to last and come with a full warranty. To get free shipping off any Vitamix purchase over $50, just go to my website, julierevelant.com slash shop and click on Vitamix. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. Babies, toddlers, and kids are all consuming way too much added sugar, and the effects on their health may surprise you. Sometimes parents just think, well, you know, my child's just moody or my child's going through a phase. And little do they know that when they actually make some small changes in diet, they see a a big change in disposition. It's not just more sugar. It's different types of sugar. That's Dr. Emily Ventura and Dr. Michael Gorin, co-authors of the book Sugar Proof. We'll talk about ethnic disparities, secondhand sugar, sneaky marketing tactics, and the more than 200 names that sugar goes by. Plus, we'll explore easy ways to detox from sugar and make healthy, delicious treats at home. Well, Dr. Gorin and Dr. Ventura, thank you so much for coming on the Food Issues podcast. Pleasure to be here, Julie. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you, you. Yeah, thank you. I've I've um, been following you for quite a while. I know you've made your rounds and all the media outlets and, and podcasts. So I'm excited for you to be here. So why don't you go ahead and kind of give listeners an overview of your background and how you developed an interest in children's health and nutrition and how you work today? Sure. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll go first. If that's okay. So. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a professor of pediatrics at Children's Hospital, Los Angeles. I've been, and I've been doing research in this area for over three decades. And 
over the last 10 or 15 years, a very clear story began to emerge uh, about sugar and, it, and it, the effects in children. And I wanted to essentially accelerate the process of bringing that information out because research tends to get buried for many, many years. And it's not just about the research, but also we wanted to have strategies and simple everyday tips for families who are dealing with this issue. And so yeah, that's where the idea of the book came from. A lot of the research we were doing and a lot of the, the uh, practical strategies that we had available and were using in our studies. And so I continue today as a researcher. To, um, I'm still a full-time researcher. I run NIH-funded studies in nutrition and health and babies and children and teenagers trying to understand how nutrition impacts health and how to develop the best types of interventions. And Emily used to be a, a graduate student in my lab, but we teamed up again on this book. So I'll hand it over to you, Emily, to give your background. Great. Yeah, so I'm a nutrition educator and a recipe developer. I'm also a mom to two boys who are six and nine. And I first got interested in this years ago when I was working at the Edible Schoolyard Project in Berkeley, which is Alice Waters' flagship um, garden and um, cooking program where those elements are integrated into the curriculum at the school. And I just saw how powerful that was and um, how much kids learned from those hands-on experiences of growing food and preparing it in a simple way. And I went on to, um, I worked as a cook and I worked as a nutrition educator in the community. And then I uh, ended up doing my graduate work with Michael at USC. And I got my PhD in health behavior research and my master's in public health as well. And um, yeah, I just, I'm really passionate about giving kids that experience because I just see how much it transforms their understanding of food and their enjoyment of simple, um, healthy food and just kind of displacing some of this processed food that contains so much sugar um, and other additives um, in their diets. Yeah. And so in what ways can excess sugar and, and different types of sugar affect kids' health? I think there's multiple effects that we talk about in Sugar Proof that really run across the whole body from literally from head to toe. So you pick pick a part of the body or an organ, there's ways in which sugar affects that, whether that's learning and development, uh, mood and behavior from the brain um, perspective, um, digestive issues, gut health, um, alterations in gut microbiome, and then uh, chronic diseases, which we don't always think of as problematic in children like heart disease or type 2 diabetes or liver disease. But what we're seeing in the research is earlier onset of those chronic conditions in childhood. And even if they're not already apparent, we've, what we've learned is that those conditions are seated in childhood. So what kids are eating today will affect their health in 10, 20, 30 years down the road. So it's a, it's a slowly evolving process whereby sugar erodes the natural ability to regulate itself, to alterations in metabolism and buildup of fat in parts of the body that we'll talk about in more detail. Um, and we're just, we're seeing 
what used to be called adult onset diseases like type, type, type 2 diabetes and liver disease, we're seeing them now in children. And then there's all the uh, other conditions, inflammatory conditions like um, acne and asthma and other inflammatory conditions that can also be traced back to sugar. And then finally, today with the pandemic, we're also seeing evidence that poor diet, high blood sugars, can uh, affect the immune response. And in fact, what we're seeing is more severe infections, more severe effects of being infected if there's a lot of processed foods and a lot of high blood sugar around. And now that we're in the swing of the back-to-school season, should parents see signs that their kids are eating too much sugar, especially when it comes to their mood and their school performance and even sleep? Absolutely. Um, Typically, parents, I think, are looking at weight gain as being the issue uh, because that's the outward sign. But uh, there's lots of other um, aspects that parents should be looking for. Maybe I'll turn that bit over to you, Emily. Great. Yes, it's it's a really good question you ask. And I think sometimes parents aren't quite aware how, um, for example, how breakfast is impacting their children because the kids eat breakfast and they're sent off to school. Um, But a number of families that we've worked with um, have seen dramatic changes in their kids' ability to focus and concentrate in school and also their school performance once they did switch breakfast, for example, to a lower sugar, um, you know, meal. And, you know, we tell some stories in the book that are fascinating, like parents that are getting emails from their um, children's teachers saying, you know, I just can't understand why, you know, my daughter, why you're you know, why Grace, one of the the girls that we talk about in the book, is falling asleep um, second period. You know, what's happening at home? Is she getting enough sleep? And, you know, sometimes parents try lots of different remedies, like they try adjusting bedtimes and try changing habits with phones at night and things like that with their preteens and teens. And little do they know that actually sugar um, is contributing to their children's lack of ability to focus. Um, And sometimes kids, you know, Kids in general, you know, have mood swings. Sometimes that comes with development. It can happen with, you know, as we all know, with toddlers, but also preteens and teenagers. Um, And sometimes parents just think, well, you know, my child's just moody or my child's going through a phase or this is normal. Um, And little do they know that when they actually make some small changes in diet, they see a a big change in disposition and um, energy levels become steadier and mood just becomes more even as well. There's also evidence showing that dietary patterns can impact school performance. And specifically, um, one study that we mentioned in the book showed that children who regularly drank sugar-sweetened beverages have had lower scores um, in grammar, reading, writing, and math. And conversely, um, habits like eating vegetables at the evening meal uh, were associated with better scores in spelling and writing. So... um, some of these shifts that you make can end up having an effect on your child's performance in school. Yeah. And you, you mentioned before Dr. Gorin about COVID and I think during the pandemic, we've heard a lot about health disparities and what do we know though about ethnic disparities when it comes to childhood obesity, type two diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? That's a great question. Something we need to, 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 to be talking more about. Uh, in fact, I think uh, <clears throat> we're, we're, we're something that we've focused on very much in our research uh, 
being based in Los Angeles, where we work a lot with the Latino community, uh, because it's it's the vulnerable segments of the population in which we're seeing the most problems in terms of uh, obesity and weight gain, uh, fatty liver disease, much higher among the Latino population, uh, diabetes and diabetes risk, much higher among Blacks and in Latinos and Native Americans. So I think what's often overlooked uh, is that there are huge disparities in some of these uh, conditions uh, that are uh, found to be more severe among those vulnerable populations. And we're, in our research, we're trying to understand, number one, why is that? Is it something about the environment, something about their physiology, their culture, and then trying to uh, develop uh, strategies that might be specifically well suited culturally to those different populations because whatever we think of as the best intervention may not be the best intervention for Latino teenagers or, or black teenagers. So I think we need to think a lot more and do a lot more to address those disparities. Yeah, those are all great points. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about this term, secondhand sugar. If you want your kids to eat more fruits and vegetables, try new foods and eat better overall, getting them in the kitchen is one of the best things you can do. I've seen how cooking has helped my own kids be more adventurous eaters, and it's given them a ton of confidence. But if cooking isn't your thing, the Kids Cook Real Food e-course is for you. The Kids Cook Real Food e-course, which was created by a mom of four and former elementary school teacher, is designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. In this course, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping list, and kid-friendly recipes like egg, fried rice, and homemade pizza. The course is designed for all kids ages two to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that my kids made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. If you're trying to cut down on processed foods and get your kids to eat more real whole foods and become healthy, adventurous eaters, then the Kids Cook Real Food e-course is for you. You can sign up for the course by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up. So in our last segment, we were talking about health disparities uh, among certain underserved populations. And, you know, I wanted to shift gears now and talk about I was researching an article for my site about women consuming sugar during pregnancy. And we're actually going to devote an entire podcast episode later on about this topic. But I learned about a term that Dr. Gorin and Dr. Ventura, you actually coined called secondhand sugar. And when I discovered this, I just thought, wow, that is so compelling, right? So 
Can you talk about what this actually is and what women need to know? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so what we found in our research was that um, there's transmission of sugar from the mother to the infant, and that can either be in utero during, during pregnancy, uh, and those sugars can affect the development of the infant. And this goes back to what we call developmental origins of disease, uh, that whatever uh, the developing fetus or infant is exposed to nutritionally can alter the path of their disease development. And that, and that transmission can also occur after birth, for example, through breast milk. So some of our research was the first to show that uh, dietary sugars that are consumed by the mom can be passed from the milk uh, to the baby. And so this got us interested in this inadvertent exposure um, among infants and uh, in neutral inadvertent exposure to too much sugar. And in fact, studies show, for example, that even small amounts of, of sugar during these critical periods of development can alter the fate of developing cells. So when the body is developing, we have stem cells and stem cells decide whether they're gonna grow into a, a bone cell or a brain cell or a liver cell. And what the research shows is that even small amounts, especially of fructose sugar can modify the fate of those developing uh, cells. So this issue of secondhand sugar is similar to, obviously it's coined after, mirrored after secondhand smoke, where you know, 20, 30 years ago, we learned that kids who weren't smoking are affected by the smoke that they breathe in. The same type of concept that babies and infants aren't choosing to consume sugar, yet they're very vulnerable to the effects of those sugars. And that's a major premise of the book, uh, is that during development, either in utero or in infancy or early childhood, when things are growing and building, they are uh, very vulnerable uh, to the effects of too much sugar. So that's kind of a key principle of the book. That's fascinating. And can you talk about the research that you uncover that you do talk about in Sugar Proof about the sugary foods that kids are consuming and um, you know, is this something new to our generation? Is this something that's been happening for a long time? Yeah, I think what's new new is it's not just that we're consuming more sugar, but because um, <clears throat> I get I get the question all the time. Oh, I had lots of sugar when I was a kid, and I'm perfectly fine. <laughs> and of course, that that's true. And we're not saying that everybody or every kid who consumes sugar is going to be uh, have terrible health the rest of their life. But it's not just more sugar. It's different types of sugar, number one. Uh, it's not just sucrose, which is ordinary table sugar. We have high fructose corn syrup, which was introduced in the 70s. And now we have all the fructose-based sugars. And there's over 200 different names of sugar. So it's different types of sugar. And then um, it's different forms of sugar. And we're seeing a lot more liquid sugar now um, for kids. So kids' beverage of choice used to be milk and water. And now, again, there's a whole host of different um, sugary beverages that kids ordinarily consume, such as juice, energy drinks, 
sodas. And that liquid sugar is more problematic because of the concentrated rapid effects are problematic from a metabolic perspective. So those are those are the examples. And then the fourth thing is that the whole environment of our food is different, especially for, for children. So 80% of, of packaged food that targeted towards children, 80% of those foods contain some type of added sugar. And so are babies born with sweet preferences? And as a result of that secondhand sugar concept, would you say that that can intensify those sweet preferences? Absolutely. And, and this is another key pivotal moment that led to me wanting to write this book was this realization that we have this overwhelming sugar environment that's different today. Uh, when you put on top of that, that kids are actually born with a built-in preference for sweetness that was supposed to be protective from an, from an evolutionary perspective, supposed to favor breast milk, which is sweet, favor seeking out of good calories and avoiding food that had perhaps spoiled or toxic berries. So we have this preference that kids will prefer things that are sweeter. And if you combine that with an environment in which 80% of foods available have sweetness in the food industry, um, knows about this preference, so they design foods to be sweet so that kids will get hooked on them. And all that does is it amps up the, the, the preference for sweetness even higher. So we're basically amping up a natural pre preference for sweetness very early in life. And this also can occur in utero. So exposure to too much sugar in utero means that babies will be born with an even higher preference for sweetness. So it's kind of backfiring. This, this protective mechanism is backfiring in today's food environment. Right. And in the last few years or so, there's been research that's come out to show that babies and toddlers are getting way too many added sugars in their diets. Right. And, and a lot of it has to do with the food companies coming out with toddler milks and baby snacks, and they're just filled with added sugars. And why do you think that this is happening? And, and do you think that maybe parents just aren't really aware of it? Well, sweetness sells and food companies yeah. know that. And so, you know, the more that the, that the consumers, the babies and, and uh, infants, infants and toddlers, um, like these products, the more the parents will say, oh, this was a big hit with my kid, you know, and the, actually there's all these health claims on the front of it. These seem like a great idea. Um, and I think what a lot of parents don't realize is that some of these um, sweeteners that actually sound healthy can be even more detrimental than the ones that, that we all know aren't great. So, you know, we all know that high fructose corn syrup um, isn't a great um, sweetener. And, you know, I think parents are clued into that, but less parents are clued into the fact that fruit juice concentrates um, can actually have a higher percentage of fructose than high fructose corn syrup. And that sounds really good, doesn't it? Like fruit juice sweetened. Um, right. You know, and if you look at the back of the label, you'll see apple juice concentrate. You might think, oh, okay, well, that sounds fine. Um, but little do you know that that's actually giving your child a concentrated dose of fructose that can be harmful on their body and specifically their liver and reinforce their, their preference for sweets. 
So it's just, um, it can be really hard to navigate as a parent. And we wanted to simplify that and um, make it easier for parents to know what to select when they're at the store and healthy, you know, easy alternatives that you can make at home. Yeah, I think that's a really good point when you mentioned all the health claims. I mean, so many of those brands will call out fruit and vegetable content when, Mm -hmm. in fact, you turn it over, you look at the label and it's not really in there. Um, and so you talked about different types of sugars and sweeteners. And so what are some myths around the different types of sugars and sweeteners that we should be aware of? Well, uh, one myth is that all sugars are similar. Um, and at, at some level they are, but uh, there's very different um, effects on the body of a high fructose-based sugar versus um, a high glucose-based sugar. So... Um, we have to find the right balance. Um, I think there's also a myth that um, well, a perception that a lot of people have when they when they think of sugar proof and our message is that we is that you have to give up all sugar to to to, to have the health benefit, uh, and that's that's not true. I think what we're saying is that you can benefit by being more aware and by trying to cut down and by modifying types of foods that you're eating and you can get actually get a lot of benefit just from uh, small reductions so you don't have to give up sugar to to win this game um and then the third myth is that that alternative sweeteners are are a good replacement so we're talking about stevias and sucralose and stuff and we'll see a lot of things in the grocery store that say uh sugar-free uh when in fact the food companies have just taken out the sugar and replaced it with stevia or monk fruit or sucralose. And that's problematic for you know, a lot of different reasons that we can talk about, but it's not a, it's not a great substitution at all. It introduces a whole lot of different other problems. And it's really about sweetness of foods as much as it is about the sugar in the food. So sweetness is a, is a big problem. Dr. Gorin, can you clarify that point that you made about the difference between something that's high fructose and high glucose and how it can affect the body? Totally. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because that um, can, can be confusing. So ordinary sugars, the white crystalline stuff is sucrose. That's the chemical name. And that's a, a disaccharide. And that's uh, two sugars joined together, glucose on the one side and fructose on the other. Those are, that's the natural form of sucrose that you find in sugarcane and in beets where it's extracted from. Uh, Once inside the body, in fact, once inside the mouth, uh, those sugars break apart. And they're both identical chemically in terms of their structure, six carbon sugars, but they're shaped a little differently. Uh, And in fact, once inside the body, they're identical for calories. Both are four calories per gram, but once absorbed by the body, they have very different effects and are handled by the body in very, very different ways. So glucose is the sugar that's used throughout the body for energy in the brain and skin and the liver, every part of the body. And the body carefully regulates blood sugar levels, blood glucose levels in particular. Whereas fructose, Uh, is filtered out of the blood by the liver. So the liver is this giant filter organ that takes everything out of the blood that it doesn't want to get around, such as drugs, 
toxins, alcohol, and fructose is another thing that it filters out. So almost 90% of that fructose gets taken up by the liver. And here's the key part to remember. The liver converts that fructose into fat. And that fat can get stuck in the liver and cause fatty liver disease, which is a major problem and can, can, can affect the ability of the liver to function. Or that fat can be put back out into the blood as, as lipids, as fat. And that, that alteration of lipids in the blood, this lipidemia, is kind of the preclinical starting point of cardiovascular disease. So that's why it's really important to understand what happens to different types of sugar uh, when they're consumed. Okay, great. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about how do you know when your kid is consuming too much sugar? If you have picky eaters, you're not alone. And as a mom of two, I totally get it. But through the years as both a journalist and a mom, I've discovered the secrets to raising kids who love their veggies and will eat just about anything. And I want to share what I've learned with you in my free ebook, 15 Secrets to Raise Healthy Eaters and Put an End to Picky Eating. This book is filled with evidence-based real-life strategies that will help you raise healthy eaters without sneaking foods, bribing, negotiating, or making food into art projects. To get the book, just go to julierevelant.com and click on freebies. So how do we know if our child is consuming too much sugar, especially because I don't think many parents are sitting there with a log, you know, looking in every food label and everything their kid ate that day? It's a great question. And there's so many different effects, broad effects that could um, be happening with your child that you might not be attributing to sugar. So if your child is lethargic or has really uneven energy levels and um, frequently gets moody and irritable, that could all be related to a high sugar diet. Um, also, you know, effects like having digestive issues, regular stomach aches or regular diarrhea could be a factor. You know, if your child's having a lot of juice, for example, those could be effects. Um, or you know, gaining weight, having um, inflammatory signs of inflammatory issues like acne or asthma, sugar might be playing into those as well. Okay, great. And so in your book, you say that sugar can go by 200 names. And I was just floored by this when I read it because I've seen another statistic where added sugars can go by around 61 names. So talk to me about this and and how can parents spot these sneaky sugars in the foods their kids are eating? Yeah, it's actually over 200. I think it's 260 and it's okay. rapidly, rapidly evolving because the food industry is constantly coming up with new ways to try and name sugar. And they do that for a couple of different reasons. One is to, to confuse the consumer or to, be, to, to hide those sugars. And what we're seeing now is an, an ingredient list has to be ordered by the amount of that ingredient. So if it's just all sugar, then sugar is number one on the list. But food companies don't want it to be number one on the list, right? They want it to be further down. So you do that by using five, six, seven different sugars uh, on in the ingredients. And then they can you can bury the, the names under evaporated uh, 
corn syrup or organic brown rice syrup, which sounds great. Organic brown rice syrup, wonderful. Um, evaporated grape juice, uh, things that sound healthy that basically make consumers not too concerned about it, but it's just at the end of the day, uh, sugar. So it is over 200 names. There's a website that we mentioned in the book that's acting as a constant update of names for sugar uh, to keep track of it all because it is like very complicated. In the, the book, we try to break it down into to different classifications. Yeah, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. That's great. And and so is there one or a few easy ways that parents can quickly identify added sugars on a food label? Well, anything ending with OSE is a sugar like glucose, fructose, maltose, etc. Um, so OSE, the O's is. Um, you know, anything that's fruit-based can be evaporated down to a sugar in the same way that but it again, it sounds good, but if you think of ordinary sugar, it's just from cane syrup, right? So evaporated cane syrup is no different from evaporated apple juice. It's just boiling it down till all you have is a sugar syrupy um, solution. Um, so watch out for those because those um, usually are fruit-based. And it's a fruit-based sugar, fruit-based concentrate, fruit-based puree. I would look out for those. And like Emily mentioned earlier, everybody's kind of clued into high fructose corn syrup just because it got such a bad rap. But the fruit juice concentrates are just, just as bad, really, metabolically. Yeah, and, and they seem to show up everywhere. I feel like any label I've read, they're, they're on there. Mm-hmm. Yes, Yeah. And so in your book, you know, you talk about two no sugar challenges and every parent, I think, loves challenges. So tell me about those two and and what parents can expect. Yeah, we we came up with the two challenges. One is a seven day no added sugar challenge. One is a 28 day. So the seven day is you go all in for seven days. uh, But what we've found is that can be very beneficial, but some families just aren't ready to do that, or there may be uh, a partner or a spouse who's less willing, or your kids may be less willing. So the 28-day is more of a gradual reduction plan. Um, But the seven-day, even though I said earlier that we're not expecting families to give up sugar forever, the seven days is a seven-day no-added sugar challenge. And the purpose of it is at, at the end of the seven days, you'll have a much better idea of where all the hidden sugars are in your pantry or in your fridge, in your regular um, your, your, your regular food items that you buy. And you'll find out what it's like to go without them. And your kids will find out. And it's going to, it might be rough. It will be rough for a day or two. And you're going to get a lot of opposition. But in our experience with hundreds of families now, uh, after that first few days, there's a resetting. It's basically the seven-day challenge is a control-alt-delete. It's a complete reboot of your system because this re-amp, this amping up of sweet taste preference that I mentioned earlier, you can actually uh, eradicate that. You can dampen it down. And the way to do that is to just go off sugar. 
Um, so it's kind of a resetting of the preferences and it gives you a much better understanding and idea of where all the hidden sugars are and a chance to replace them. So you go to your pantry right now and check your peanut butter, your tomato sauce, your salad dressings and stuff like that. There's lots of different better options. You don't need sugar in, in, in peanut butter or tomato sauce. Right. Yeah. It's pretty wild. I think that definitely limiting the sugars in your diet can reset your taste preferences. I know this week, actually, um, I had purchased mini scones at Target for um, friends coming over. And the next day, I, you know, I had it for my daughter's. And when I ate it, I felt like, whoa, this is really, really sugary. I did not even like it. And I didn't like the way that it made me feel. And then my eight-year-old, the, the minute she bit into it, she said, wow, that's really sugary. And it's simply mm-hmm. because we're just not used to eating that way. So I, I do think that that can work. Yeah, I think what's happening is, especially with commercial foods like that, this, the, the sweetness and there's a lot of sugar put in there to mask the chemicals that are added to processed foods to make it sweeter so that it tastes good. But I think in the end, this is what has happened. Like what I say to people is, have you ever had a bought a bought a blueberry muffin where you can actually taste the blueberries? And what's happening is you can't taste the blueberries or whatever was in the scone that you bought because there's so much sugar that that overwhelms all the other taste for, taste buds in your mouth yeah the, 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 the sugar receptor is so strong the sensation of sweetness is so strong that it becomes overwhelmed and, and we're losing out on the taste of all the other great things that are in there and that's a real key premise of sugar proof is if we can at least just reduce that sugar there's two ways to do it you can reduce the sugar you can make a, a muffin with 50 percent less sugar than the recipe calls for or in sugar proof, we have recipes that have no added sugar and just sweeten things with natural foods like bananas or apples or dates. And there, not only do you eliminate the added sugar, but you get the natural sweetness and the taste. So we're trying to reawaken all these taste buds that have gotten overwhelmed by so much sugar. Yeah, that's great. So you talked about limiting sugar, but not you know, having a complete overhaul where we're totally avoiding sugar because that's just not realistic. But what are your best tips, practical tips for families to limit added sugars in their diet? The two main things that we focus on first are breakfast and beverages. So starting off your day with a lower sugar breakfast um, has huge effects for kids and adults all throughout the day. And we talk about this in relation to a concept we call the sugar roller coaster. So if you start out the day with something that's, you know, really sweet, like a sweetened breakfast cereal and a glass of juice or toast with jam, um, what happens is your blood sugar goes up and then um, your insulin levels rise to compensate and then you end up having a crash in energy levels and blood sugar. And um, that just fuels another round of craving for sweet foods and another, you know, bout of eating something that's suboptimal um, if that's available. So 
Um, kids can easily stay on that sugar roller coaster all day. But if you start out the morning with a breakfast that is lower in sugar and higher in fiber and includes some protein and healthy fat, then energy levels are much more steady and kids are able to concentrate for longer. And they're also able to make better eating choices later in the day at lunch, snack time, dinner, all through the day. So we really do put a big um, emphasis on breakfast and we give lots of tips for easy ways to um, to make changes to the breakfast routine. And then beverages are another focus just because, as Michael mentioned, um, the research shows that liquid sugar really is um, extremely detrimental. And a lot of the, the studies that look at dietary patterns, they they pick out sugar as um, as showing, you know, effect on different health outcomes. But it, when, when those outcomes are teased apart even more, oftentimes really it is the sugar-sweetened beverages specifically that's having um, effects on depression or obesity or fatty liver disease or, or whatever the outcome is. Um, so uh, it, it's really, um, if, if families are regularly purchasing things like juice or sports drinks or soft drinks and having them in the home, um, we suggest trying to start by just watering those down and then slowly eliminating them so they're not in the home environment. That's great. And then in terms of treats, what would you say, you mentioned a little bit about making some ingredient swaps. So what are your favorite ideas from the book, favorite recipes that you like to use and, and are good for your parents? We have some really great ones. Um, the first one that comes to mind are our chocolate sesame squares, which have been so popular. Um, they're no-bake, and so it's a really easy recipe where you just put the ingredients in a food processor and then press them into a baking tray and, and slice them, or you can roll them um, into balls, like energy energy bites. Um, and it's such an easy recipe. It has tahini and dates and oats and cocoa powder and um it's really easy for lunch boxes and also happens to be nut free, which is helpful for families who, you know, a lot of the schools these days have um, rules to, to not bring nuts to school. Um, we have a number of different recipes for treats and snacks um, that are easy and that kids can help make. We just published our um, sugar-proof Nutella. So it's an, mm. another example of, it's a popular favorite in many families and many households, Nutella. And oh, you know, okay. we, took, we, we took the challenge of saying, okay, how can we make uh, a Nutella without added sugar? And that's what uh, Emily created. And we just actually, that's our most recent recipe that's just, uh, we don't need it all on our blog. Uh-huh. So I think the, the, the idea is to do, and then the, muffin, the blueberry muffin I mentioned is another one that was one of the first ones that Emily created. And it's, it's very popular. Everybody seems to, to love it. And it's very versatile as well. It could be a treat, could be a snack, could go in the lunchbox. That's great. Well, Dr. Gorin and Dr. Ventura, thank you so much for your time today. This is all extremely helpful content and we'll be sure to link to Sugar Proof in the show notes and everything we talked about today. But where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Yeah, you, our website is sugarproofkids.com. And uh, on Instagram and on Facebook, the, our handle is at sugarproofkids. And then the book is available everywhere books are sold, whether that's real bookstores, if you're getting into real bookstores or online bookstores. And it's available in, also available in Kindle and audiobook too, if, if that's your preference. 
Perfect. Well, thank you again for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Wow, that was an amazing interview with Dr. Gordon and Dr. Ventura. They are such a wealth of information, so definitely go grab a copy of their book, which I've linked to in the show notes. Also, be sure to go into Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating so we can reach more people. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for listening to Food Issues. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 